invite you to turn in your copy of the scriptures to John, John's account of the gospel, John chapter 7, as we finish this long chapter, after following another discourse, we see Jesus and those who are there struggling with regard to the things that he has to say. They're looking to arrest him. Uh, they're unable to do that, and it's quite simply because, as the scripture said, it was not his time. So we see the sovereignty of God in the two or three times that that's been mentioned, that it's not his time to be arrested, to become a sacrifice for us. And we see now, as we talked last week from verse 37 to 39, where Jesus stands up on the last day of the feast and cries out, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Out of his heart will flow living waters. What a wonderful promise. What a great exhortation to hear from our Lord that not only will our life be saved, but we will become a conduit. A river will flow out from us in the confidence that we have in Jesus, particularly in who he is as the Christ, as Messiah, as Son of God. And so this morning we're looking at verse 40 through 52, the end of the passage. Let's Let's read this together. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees and said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Father, we thank you for this final passage at the end of this chapter. It helps us to understand, Lord, the power of your word. And Lord, oh, they saw the display of power clearly, certainly in your feeding of thousands and in your healing of hundreds. Lord, we pray that now we would fully understand how this division comes about. Help us come to a biblical understanding. What does your scriptures have to say, Lord, about this business of these disparate views, these varying views about who you are? We ask that we might learn, that we might grow in our knowledge 
the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So the question of who Jesus is has obviously plagued the Jews from his day on. From when he was born, going forward, there's this constant speculation going on as to who Jesus is. There's much happening even in this passage. There has been before and there will be all the way up to his crucifixion. They can't seem to land on the same place. Instead of uniting them, their understanding of scriptures or misunderstanding or their uh, ignorance of scriptures, it just depends on who you're talking to in this crowd, uh, they could not come, seem to come to any kind of a consensus. And we see that continuing even to this day. The, if they had come to a consensus of opinion on who Jesus was, of course, it would <clears throat> usher them straight to the cross to fulfill their need for a Savior. But it didn't. Division happened. It divided them. So the first thing we take away in our understanding, and we've seen this already in what we've covered in the first seven chapters of John's Gospel, is that the Word of God, when it comes, it divides. That's its purpose. It divides. I'll give you a couple of examples of where we're going from here, where you'll see the same thing. In John chapter 9. You remember the man born blind that Jesus healed. I'm looking forward to getting to that chapter. <laughs> so the Pharisees are questioning him. You remember that part of it? John 9, 16 and 17. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, speaking of Jesus, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Ah, see, we know that bothered them in chapter 5 at the Pool of Siloam when he healed the man who had been lame for 38 years. They're, this is still bothering them, right? But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? Now you're asking tough questions. And there was a division among them. There it is again. This is what happens when the word of God issues forth. It divides. It does it all the time. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. And that, in my view, should be a capital P with a definite article, the. This is the prophet. Because he goes on, of course, to say, recognizing who Christ is as the Christ, the Son of God, who would come as a prophet like Moses. So he fully recognizes who this is. Now with his physical eyes open and also his spiritual eyes. Chapter 10, the very next chapter Chapter 10, 19 to 21, there was again division among the Jews because of these words. So the words that he's speaking divide. As soon as he speaks them, there's division. People start dividing. That's its purpose. That's his winnowing. That's what he does. That's the power in his word. So I would suggest to you that if we've been impressed up to this point with the power of his miracles, this should be catching our attention as even far more impressive. He speaks words and, and, and hearts are pierced. It bypasses just a normal auditory hearing and uh, cognition. No, it, he, he splays open the chest. He opens up the heart with his words and exposes it because people respond in accord to the real condition of their hearts. It's what he's doing. It's his intention. So here we go again. There's, again, division. 
John 10, 19. Among the Jews, because of the words of Jesus, many of them said, he has a demon and he's insane. So there's always speculation too. Here's who he is. That's why you've got multiple churches with, and multiple denominations. No, this is who he is. No, this is who he is. It's all over one thing. And that's what a church or denomination holds to be their Christology. That's what needs to be attacked if you're going to defeat Christianity altogether. You're going to attack the person of Christ. And so that's what they go after. So this issue of who he is, we'd better have those ducks in a row. We'd better understand who he is. And it's his word that parses through, that, that winnows through as tines on a, on a hay fork, that pulls out and throws up in the air and the chaff blows away and the true wheat that has value falls to the ground. It's what he does. Others said from John 10, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Ah, there you go applying logic again. There you go reasoning through it. You do that, you're going to make it to the cross. Your eyes will be open. You'll see who Jesus is. Keep it up. He's given us a reasonable, not an unreasonable faith, a reasonable one. We can ask questions of the scripture with the confidence that God actually gives us the answer. Confusion can meet with clarity from our Lord if we look to the scriptures. So this final 13 verses in this passage we also notice one other thing, that it's devoid of any words from Christ. So Christ isn't speaking in this particular passage. He's already spoken. His word is already having its effect in this final passage. It shows you see the disparity in the views of who he is. His word comes and that's what it does. It doesn't unite, it divides. Why? So that those who are authentic can get to the cross. Because they'll recognize him as the Savior that they so desperately need. And he winnows out the rest. That's what he does. We've seen him do that in the past, in our past chapters, and he's still doing that now. He still does that to this day. So all we see here is bickering from the crowd and, and warnings from the religious uh, power source of the day, mocking, things like that. So though they may have knowledge of the Scripture and what it has to say about the Messiah, they still remain blinded in their hearts. There is this veil that remains over their heart. They've got the Scriptures. They've got the Pharisees, the scribes. They've got their rabbis. They've got the temple. They, they should know what it has to say about Messiah. There shouldn't be any question about it. But there's this veil. Like 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says, it, it, if they're blinded, they're blinded by, if their heart is blinded, it's blinded by the God of this world. He keeps it blinded. That veil needs to be lifted. We see in the very beginning of the gospel accounts, the synoptic gospels, we see particularly in Luke's account, a man named Simeon was about uh, was was told that he would not die until he would lay eyes on the Savior. And so in Luke 2, 
34 and 35, and you'll hear more of Luke 2 as we get closer to Christmas, of course, a wonderful account of our Lord's birth and arrival and all the rest. But with Simeon, this is powerful here, given our context. And Simeon blessed them, the Mary and Joseph and the child, and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. That's what his word does. It, his word and his word alone has that power to pierce into the heart of man, to expose his thoughts, to expose his motives, to see what his real agenda is. You remember John chapter 2, 24 and 25, he didn't accept the ones that wanted to come to him in belief because he could see their hearts. He could see that they weren't really on board. They didn't really believe because he knows the hearts of man. He not only knows the hearts of man, he speaks words to pierce into the heart of man in order to, in a very discerning way, accurately show what the condition of their heart is. That's what the scripture does. When it's sincerely received, it opens up the heart. He, as he as it is here, we see with Mary and Simeon, this sword will pierce through your own soul. It's a sword. He who has come has come with a sword. Matthew 10, 34 to 36. Do not think that I, this is Jesus, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. Uh-oh. We don't want to hear that at Christmas, do we? I have not come to bring peace, but what? A sword. Now, if you think of it as we ordinarily do, a sword is used for battle and for uh, slaying your enemy and all of that. That's not how he's using this. I brought the sword, the same sword I'm going to bring when I come back again. When he comes back, where's the sword coming from? His mouth. It's always about his word. Never forget that. It is always about his word, rightly treated, appropriately used to pierce through the thoughts of man. It is living, it's active, it's powerful. It cuts to the bone and to the marrow. It alone is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. People say a lot of things, but he was exposing their heart. I'm not accepting you because I can look at your heart, he's saying to the ones that actually believed him. Or how about this in John 8, 31? He said to the Jews that were believing him, abide in my what? Word. And then you'll, you are my disciples. You're my follower. If you stay in my word, if you allow the working of the word to happen in your life, to open you up in a way that's not necessarily very comfortable, but it's needful, it's important, then I will be faithful to do just that because I haven't come unarmed. I've come with a sword. The words I speak are the sword. The sword of the Spirit is what? According to Ephesians 6, in those pieces of armor, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. That's the sword. You'll blow people back with some of the things that you believe. And when you're appointed to say them, it'll brush them back some, some will. Others will just reject it altogether and just change the subject. Others will be intrigued. You see what happens? Just what's happening here. 
It begins to split people up. So he goes on in Matthew 10, 34 to 36. He came to bring a sword, for I have come to set a man against his own father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. How does this feel? I can tell you it doesn't feel good. But that's what he's doing. I've come to bring a sword. I've come for those whose names are written in the book of the life, who the Father has given to me, and I will recapture them. They're mine. But if they're not, not. It's not going to happen. He can speak all he wants. He had perhaps thousands, right? John 6, 66. Walk away. Disciples, so defined, walk away. What has the power to do that? What has the power to allow those to stay and they get why they need to stay because they, the word of God enters their heart and they understand, look, he's got the words of eternal life. Verse 68 of chapter 6. He's got, where else were we going to go? When Jesus challenges them, are you going to leave too? He's winnowing. He's separating. He's the sword of his mouth is dividing up families. And he makes it very clear, by the way, right after that in chapter 10, that anybody who loves mother or father more than me, what? Not worthy. He goes through a whole list. You're not worthy of me. Wow, that's hard. Mm-hmm. You got to watch what you're wrapping your heart around because he's coming in with a sword. Are you his? That's the point. That's the whole point. So the sword of the spirit is the word of God is Ephesians 6.17. So you could say it another way. The word of God is a sword. The word of God is the sword, but it's a sword with power. Sword of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the word of God. Unsheathed, it comes with power. His power, rightly used. It's going to either draw them or separate them. It has that very important effect. So much for the introduction. Here's what we're going to look at. The words of Christ expose the heart. Already set that up revealing six primary perspectives that we see in the text. So I'm going to just read through these quickly. They're on the outline for you, and then we'll go through them one by one. So the ones we can recognize from the text this morning are, first, the convinced. There are those when the Word of God comes, they're convinced. The Word did it, not our cleverness. I'm glad to hear that because I'm not very clever, Right? No amens? Thank you. I see that hand. Thank, thank. Secondly, and that's from verse 40 to 41, first half. Secondly, the confused. So there's, there are those when you start talking about it, they're like, well, wait a second, I thought this. Or I thought that about Jesus, right? The confused. Verse 41, second half to 45. Third is the captivated. The captivated. Verse 46. That's the soldiers that go and they hear him and it's like, Nobody's ever talked like this. I mean, they're totally wrapped in his, what he speaks. Four is the corrupt, verse 47 to 49. Five, the compliant, verse 50 to 51. And sixth, the contrarian, verse 52. These are the toughest ones to see the fruit of his word when it goes out because they're contrary. And 
not usually very gentle or kind about it. So let's dive in. First, the convinced. Verse 40 to 41, first half. These people are the convinced. When they heard these words, you see that? It's when they heard the words. Some of the people said, this is just some though, right? So we're seeing these different categories. This really is the prophet. This is the one that he talked about. You remember when they hit John the Baptist up with that question in chapter 1, verse 22, the people asked John the Baptist, are you the prophet? What was his answer? No, because he knew what they meant by that. You're talking about Moses. You're talking about Deuteronomy 18. I get that. That's not me. That's going to be the Messiah, and I'm not him. Deuteronomy 18, 15, and verse 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall, what? Listen. Listen. What do you say on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17? When they're all gathered up there and Peter, there he goes, there he goes. This is my beloved son in whom, well pleased, what did he say after that? Hear ye him, listen to him. Stop talking, Peter. Listen, because your words, no power. You want to set up some tents. That's, that's sweet. Listen to Jesus. Listen to his words. Don't glaze over because you've read this over and over again. Let them be fresh. He's still speaking. This word is alive. It's speaking in real time to real problems. Listen to him. He's not scolding him. I think so much as he, he cares about Peter. He, he, he's a disciple. He's the, the chief disciple, if you will. And so God is saying, you need to listen to Jesus. Listen to him. Verse 18 of Deuteronomy 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth. Did they like hearing that in, sub, in the previous chapters? I, I didn't come with my own will. I didn't come with my own words. These are the words the Father have, has given me. Oh, they want to kill him. Why? Because of the power in the things that he said. Those being true, coming with the power of the Holy Spirit, are always going to shake things up, one way or the other. And we see that in this passage with this crowd. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Coming down from the Father, through the Son, spoken with a, in a real body, a human body, a perfect body, and with vocal cords, able to form sounds, so that the ideas of God, and God, remember, is a spirit. He doesn't have a body. He's a, he's a spirit being. So the ideas of God that he thinks are spoken, and they happen. God spoke, and things are physical are created. And we're in that context. That's what we live in, with the timeline continuum that he placed us in. So I'm going to give him my word so that he can, as a, as a, 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 uh, incarnate son of God with a body he can speak them and you'll have writers who will write them and they are my words and they have power listen 
to them. Peter repeats this, doesn't he? In that first powerful sermon where we see 3,000 saved at the beginning of Acts in chapter 2. He's quoting Deuteronomy. Here's Peter. Acts 2, or I'm sorry, Acts 3. He's in Solomon's portico. You remember that. So this is the second sermon he has. Moses said, verse 22, The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Listen to this now. Verse 23, And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet, he's adding this, but it makes sense. This is the, this is the logical outcome if you do not listen to his words. The soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. John chapter 3, verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. John chapter 6, verse 14, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. John 6, 63 and 64, The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. When those guys became convinced, we knew that he who possesses life, he who himself is life, when he speaks, his words are piercing their sword and they bring life. And that, that life was the light of men. Now lights come on and they understand and they see him. That person who's heretofore blind and cannot, he can see. I see who you are now. And we're amazed by that when we've used that same principle, using the Word of God and watching people come to life. I get it. You're like, wow, I didn't expect you to get it. (laughs) The power of God's Word. People can actually be saved by reading the Word. Do you believe that? You should. There was nobody in that apartment in New York City. Give me the Word. The love of God drew me. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And that's precisely what happened. Amazing. His words are spoken in their spirit and life. John eight forty seven. Whoever is of God hears words of God. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. If not, you won't. You can keep trying, and you should keep trying to get the words across to people who are dead and blind, who are perishing. You continue with God's, maybe, and and I, I want you to understand, these different people, groups here, just understand one of the things we take away from this is some people come to Christ over a progression. You don't give up. You keep going. You're like that, that drilling and blasting crew who are putting highways through the mountains in North Carolina. They drilled and drilled and drilled and drilled. Sounds like what we've been listening to next door. Yeah, wonderful. Drilling and drilling and drilling and drilling and drilling. And then finally, somebody sets a charge. Somebody comes along, and maybe it isn't even you, and so you're like, man, I've been trying to tell you that for three years, four years, seven years. 
My brother had been praying for me. He told me when we finally arrived in California, I've been praying for you for seven years. We don't give up. Because it's the Word of God that has power. We trust that. We keep going. We make it a matter of prayer. We pray those words, those words that reach out, the words that apply to this person specifically so that soul might be retrieved. That's the power. It's the power in the Word. It's not our cleverness. It's not gimmicks. It's not techniques. It's the Word of God. And so we preach the Word of God. And we teach the Word of God. And we share the Word of God. Because that, my friends, is not only what brings life, it grows you up in greater likeness to Christ. And every one of you out there that knows Him and is being raised up in the Word is looking more and more like Jesus Christ. That's what we want for the children downstairs, isn't it? Yes. Yes, it is. Whoever is of God hears the word of God. The reason, he goes on to say, why you do not hear them, why you do not hear them, he's saying, is that you're not of God. You're not on the list. You're not in the book. You're just not. We have to accept that. But it doesn't mean we stop. Because we don't, do you know whose names are written in there? No. So we keep going. We don't give up. And God responds to our prayers. God hears our heart cries for particular ones that are unsaved and perishing, and we can't bear the thought. It, 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 it breaks my heart that there are Jews, God's beloved people, who are in eternal damnation now because they've rejected their Messiah and suddenly they were killed. That should, that should affect every one of our hearts here this morning. Jesus in the high priestly prayer, John 17, verse 7 and 8, he's speaking to the Father. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them, what did he give us? The words. I have given them the words that you gave me. Remember, they came from the Father. He made that clear too. And they have received them. And have come to know the truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. This is rejoicing. This is joy and rejoicing by the Son of Man, the Son of God. I saw it happen. I gave them the words that you gave me. And life happened. And we rejoice with the angels. When even one hears those words and comes to Christ and is saved. Verse 41a, these are the convinced as well, isn't it? The ones at the beginning of verse 41. Others said, and this is the most succinct way to put it, this is the Christ. This is the Christ. John 1.41 with Andrew he, Andrew, first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah which means Christ. We found him. The lights came on. Behold, what words were spoken? Very few. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They looked and bam, they knew who he was. That's a powerful word, friends. That is a power. Don't underestimate the power of the word. Use the words of Christ. He's still speaking right here in your lap through this book, through this word. And speak to them from that book. 
Don't think that we have to be clever in some other kind of way. Once we drift away from this, don't expect much to happen. He's not going to share his glory with who? Any of us. He won't do it. He's a jealous God. John 4, verse 25, the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. This is the woman at the well. Remember the Samaritan woman? He who is called Christ. I know that he's coming. This is her saying this because she suspects that this is actually him. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And he goes on to reveal himself to her. So then in verse 25 of chapter 4, the woman said to him, I know uh, that the Messiah, or I already read that part. Yeah, okay, so verse 29, excuse me. Come, see a man, when she goes into town, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? His words have power in her case because he understands her story. Remember? Go and get your husband. He didn't refrain from speaking hard truths. If it meant saving a soul, if it meant bringing the real kind of satiating help that she needed, that she was looking from man for from man to man to man to man, including the man she was living with who she was not married to. And then verse 42. They said the townspeople came walking up, remember? And they listened to Jesus. They asked him to stay for two days. You remember that? He stayed for two days. What was that like? You talk about words. Powerful words speaking truth. And so they come back to the woman and they said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. It's not going to be what you said. Are are we getting this? It's not going to be what you said. For we have heard for ourselves. From whom? From Christ. And we know. They're convinced. This is the convinced And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So the convinced are those who hear and receive and believe the words of God given by His Son, Jesus Christ. Second group, the confused. And some of these are shorter than others. I don't know how far we get today, but we'll see. Verse 41 to 45. 41 second half to 45. Second half of 41. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Okay, here we go. This is the confused crowd. Has not the scripture said that uh, the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? To the confused, God offers clarity. We read Micah 5.2, for instance, which makes it clear he's going to come from Bethlehem. So they don't get it because they know that Jesus was raised in Nazareth. He's the carpenter's son, isn't he? We know his mother. We know his brothers and his sisters. Remember that? They're confused. Psalm 89, which was read for us this morning, verses 3 and 4 and 35 and 36. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness. I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. That's pretty clear, isn't it? And that's just one place where it's promised. He makes that promise very clear. Yes, 
He's going to come from the line of David. He's going to have been born in Bethlehem. And where was Jesus born? In Bethlehem. But they're confused. And I think the religious uh, instigators allowed them to wallow in that confusion, even though I'm certain that there are many of them that know that Jesus was from Bethlehem. They let them wallow in that confusion. And some of these religious uh, uh, leaders in false religions, false uh, areas, will, will mislead people. They'll allow people to be in a state of confusion so that they can keep them in their particular false belief. Very common. Again, we have Peter here. This is actually is in the uh, first sermon that he preached, chapter 2, 29 to 32. He's repeating these things. I love how the Old Testament finally makes sense to them in Acts. It comes alive to them. He's quoting Psalm 110. He's quoting Joel 2. He's quoting things because now it's come alive. The words have come alive to him. He has the Holy Spirit, not just an occasion of him coming along for God's purpose like he did in the Old Testament. No, he, he indwells him now. And so now he's saying these things. He's repeating things out of the Old Testament. So it's made very clear. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades. That's, he's, he's referencing Psalm 110. So what's the deal? Well, he says, nor will his flesh see corruption. Then Jesus, God, this Jesus, God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. So David's still in his tomb. His dust is there. He died. But Jesus, his, descent, his rightful descendant, as the synoptics point out at the beginning of Luke and of Matthew, is, he's still alive. How? He says how. He's been raised up. As you all know, this had just shortly occurred. There's no denying it. You can't find his body. He's gone. He's been risen. Verse 43 to 45, so there was a division among the people over him. They were struggling with this. At least this particular portion of the crowd were confused. They were made to understand one thing, and it's made all it's done for them is offer confusion to them. Verse 44, some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, said to them, why did you not bring him? They sent them out, the officers out, to arrest him. And I love this. This is the, the, the third group is the officers, the captivated. You can see them, you can almost picture them with these blank stares saying, the officers answered, number three, verse 46, no one ever spoke like this man. No one. We were captivated by him. His words were captivating, so captivating that even though we're armed officers, duty-bound to arrest him, we couldn't. You see the power in that word? Captivated. Struck. 
struck. It's not likely these officers necessarily became sympathizers of Jesus, but at this point, they are definitely captivated by his words. His words certainly did leave them dumbstruck. His words left them stunned with nothing to say in return. You're under arrest? That just doesn't fit here. And it just isn't going to work. Listen to what he's, he's spoken away. In other places in the gospel, right, people say that. They say no one has ever spoken like him. It's his words. That's why it's our middle name. This is grace. Bible fellowship. It's the supremacy of scriptures. You can't overestimate the power and the importance of God's word and how he himself exalted even above himself. It's amazing. So like when Jesus finished teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds, it says in Matthew seven twenty-eight and 29, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. They were blown back. I mean, they were struck, stunned, astonished. And so were the officers. But let's look at the fourth group. How did they respond to these officers? Well, now you've got a fourth group, the corrupt. Verse 47 to 49, the Pharisees answered the officers, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. So you can see in these three verses, there's three ways that they were going to deal with this post-haste. We're dealing with this right now, and we're dealing it with a very straightforward way, like a bulldozer we're going to deal with this. So lest they risk that these officers now are going to become Christians, Jesus' latest converts, the Pharisees immediately go into action. We see in verse 47, Have you also been deceived? They hit him with a loaded question. Do you all know what a loaded question is in, in, uh, in rhetoric? I'll give you an example. What's the example that we usually use? When did you stop beating your wife? That's a loaded question. How do you get out from under that? That's this. Are you also deceived? What's the implication there? I mean, this is loaded to the max. That anybody who listens to him is what? Being deceived. It reminded me of someone. <clears throat> some, someone a long time before this. Indeed. Did God actually say? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Did he actually... Did he actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Is that what God said? Uh Uh-uh. This is a lie. These are the men that are deceived. The ones confronting the officers are deceived. There's the irony. They're deceived. And they're deceived by the same one I quoted from Genesis chapter 3. He didn't say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. You can eat from any. It sounds really restrictive and legalistic. No, 
He said, from any of the trees in the garden you can eat except this one, right? For if you eat from it, you will surely die. That's chapter 2, verse 17 of Genesis. Well, who's, it shouldn't surprise us. Who's promoting these guys to speak? We hope that Christ is, is pleased to speak through us his words, aren't we? Because we have his Holy Spirit by profession of faith, And by our conversion experience, we read his words and we're hoping that that will always speak things in accord with his word. Whose word are they speaking in accord with? Let me ask you this. Whose agenda are they furthering here? God's? Not even Moses, their hero. The second way is found in verse, their second tactic And I believe this comes straight for the enemy that's inspiring them. Verse 48, have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? So secondly, it's faulty reasoning. You mean because none of you Pharisees and the religious people, that's a pretty small group when you look at the whole pop population of God's nation, Israel, just because you didn't believe, that invalidates The veracity of what Jesus says in his word? Faulty reasoning. Third, in uh, verse 49, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. But before I get to that, I'm reminded of Genesis 3, or yeah, Genesis 3 again, and, and Satan with the faulty reasoning. In verse Five of Genesis 3, it says, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. This is total, total faulty reasoning. That's not true. That's not why they're not supposed to eat it. Because God doesn't want them to be like him. This is a lie. This whole thing is fraught with deceptions, with lies. So third, from verse 49, this is outright lying about the spiritual status of the crowd. But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Is that true? You don't know that. Why are you saying they're accursed? Because they don't go along with you? Because they're believing? Because they're actually giving audience to this man, Jesus? Because his words have power? They're actually resonating in my heart in some, some strange kind of way that It's outright lying. They're not accursed. That reminds me of verse 4 in Genesis 3. You will not surely what, die. First time a lie is interrupted in an otherwise perfectly pristine, pure environment. The lie enters in at that point. The officers are speechless. They're bewildered. They're dumbfounded by the Pharisees' response to them. Finally, the compliant, and we will finish, Lord willing. We're almost there. Five, the compliant. Verse 5051. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, and who was one of them, said to them, this would be the Pharisees, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Listen, I'm telling you, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Open-ended questions 
get the wheels turning in other people and are far more effective because they're more innocuous. In other words, they're not as, as painful to hear. You're asking them questions because people like to have the answers and you're getting their wheels turning. Learn how to do that. It's actually quite effective. So he's, he's reasoning with them. I like the progression of Nicodemus, don't you? When we see him at first, of course, in chapter 3 of John, he's, he's approaching Jesus in the middle of the night to ask him, what does this mean? One must be born again. I, can a man enter his mother's womb? So he's working through those issues early on. To by the time we get to chapter 7, he's now questioning them. He hasn't outright said, defended him, but this is coming pretty close, isn't it? It's coming pretty close. He's compliant. He's saying, let the man speak. And we'll know, according to the scriptures, whether he's in violation, because he's not. I visited with him. I spoke into the night with him. I asked him the tough questions. And he answered them. And his answers were so utterly profound and correct. I had nothing to say. And this is the teacher of Israel, as Jesus points out in John 3. John 19, 38 to 40, we learn that he goes even further. His progression of growing for his love and appreciation and recognition of who Jesus is. So he joins up with Joseph of Arimathea. Remember? After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away the body. Nicodemus also who earlier had come to visit Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices as the burial custom of the Jews was. So look at the progression of Nicodemus. And remember, I'm still, as I said earlier, convinced that there, with some of these people, we don't count them out, do we? Because some people take some time. He goes from chapter 3 to chapter 19, and you can see the progression. He goes from risking it somewhat by going to Jesus at all to ask him questions when he's the teacher of Israel, but he goes at night, doesn't he? Right? So maybe under the color, cover of darkness, maybe that's the only time that Jesus was free and available to talk to. We don't really know, but he, you can see this progression, and now he's challenging the Sanhedrin itself. Are we going to judge a man before we even listen to him? Is that what our law says? And now this is outright in the public. This is Messiah. Arimathea gets it, and so does Nicodemus. He's giving him Arimathea. Joseph is giving him his family uh, tomb, which is the tomb of a wealthy family, that was saved for them, and he's giving it to Jesus. And look at what Nicodemus is doing. And it's right out in public. Anybody who denies Jesus in public, what does he think about that? I'll deny you when you stand before the Father. Oh, look at me. I didn't say it. He did. Six, finally. The contrarian. And then there's those who just won't come off of trying to convince people that they're wrong about Jesus. They'll argue until the cows come home. They're just going to press it. Verse 52, they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. 
They're attempting to, to intimidate them. They're intimidating these officers. They're insulting them. You get brushed back in that form. You continue to speak the words of God with the boldness that you should have in fear of God, with no fear of man, out of pure love that drives you. You are speaking the truth in love. You are speaking his word to a lost soul. And the, you get met with insults. You get mocked. Common method that they use to try to dissuade people from embracing the truth, from just saying, you know what? Because it's humbling. Our pride doesn't want us to go along with this. Our pride wants us to have the robes, the tassels, and the phylacteries of the Pharisees. That's what our pride wants. If I've got to go on with him, I've got to get all that up and sort of bend the knee to him. I've got to, I've got to comply like Nicodemus did. I'm going to read something from J.C. Ryle and read a passage or two and we'll close. This is just too good not to share with you. The leading features of these discourses are plain and unmistakable. The clarity of Scripture always is. The world has never seen anything like them since the gift of speech was given to man. They often contain deep truths which we have no line to fathom. But they often contain simple things which even a child can understand. Isn't that wonderful? We can rest in that. They're bold and outspoken in denouncing national and ecclesiastical sins, sins in the church. And yet they are wise and discreet and never giving needless offense. They are faithful and direct in their warnings and yet loving and tender in their invitations. For a combination of power and simplicity, of courage and prudence, of faithfulness and tenderness, we may well say, never man spoke like this man. The knowledge of God that we've gained from the scriptures, from what Jesus teaches to us in the, in the head, the knowledge we get in the cerebral cortex, the things we're musing over like you are doing now, has an intention, and that is to descend down into your heart because that is the chamber whereby affections are formed. You can't form affections for someone you do not know. So Peter finishes his final epistle, 1 Peter 3.18. He prays that they will grow in the grace and what? Knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ because as you do, you can't help but love him for all that he's done. And all he bids you to do is come. Come. That's what he says. True Christianity then is as Galatians 5, 6 says. It's faith working through love. That's what it is. 2 Corinthians three twelve to 16. This speaks to, the, to what we saw that day in our text with some in the crowd, many in the crowd, I would say, since we have such a hope. 2 Corinthians three twelve to 16. We are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. 
For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. And friends, you'll see him. You'll see him. I remember that day. I remember when the veil was lifted. And if a wretch like me can be invited to see the beauty and the purity of the living Christ, there's hope for anybody. I'm finished with Isaiah 25, 7 and 8. Listen to this. Just the beauty of this passage. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord God has spoken. Father, thank you for these promises. And oh, oh, dear Lord, how your people need this. How your people need this. May this be the day and the hour in their tragic moment of so much wickedness and evil foisted on them with death taking hostages, all the rest of it, Lord. Remove the veil. Remove the veil, O Lord, and allow them to see. Oh, God, allow them to see you. Surely they would come. They're your nation. They're your people. Lift the veil. We appeal to you as a body of Christ that you would lift the veil that they might see and be saved. Do that for us now if it hasn't been done already. There will be one day when we won't hear your words and then comes judgment. And Lord, we, we fear that day for those that we love that do not know you. May we not grow weary in well-doing, but continue to pray and hold out hope and speaking the words of Christ with gentleness and respect, with faith and with love, that if you should so choose, you will save their souls. May we rest in that truth and be confident in it. That you might be glorified in these things are our greatest hope and expectation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.